Welcome to the Lacey School of Business Ethics Series, presented by Old National Bank. I'm Hilary Buttrick, Associate Professor of Business Law and Interim Dean at Butler University's Lacey School of Business. In today's podcast, we're having a conversation about issues of racial and social injustice in our community and beyond, and we're exploring ways that business and community leaders can make a difference. My guest today is Jennifer Pope Baker, Executive Director of Women's Fund. Jennifer, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. For those of our listeners who are not familiar with Women's Fund, tell us about the mission, purpose, and work of your organization. Thanks for asking. Women's Fund of Central Indiana mobilizes people, ideas, and investments so every woman and girl in our community has an equitable opportunity to reach her full potential, no matter her place, race, or identity. And we use this as our guidepost to make sure that all of our decision-making focuses back on our mission and connects there. We uh, provide funding to organizations supporting women and girls. Our primary focus is helping women and girls who are living in poverty make the transition to a lifetime of economic security. It's really important to us that we fund programming that is holistic and wraps around um, women and girls to look at all the different things they need on that journey. Um, Organizations that recognize emotional um, well-being and either provide or uh, personally or provide connections to mental health providers is critically important to us as well and that that is culturally competent um, programming. I want to turn to one of the most pressing concerns in our community and our nation, a concern that has been brought into sharp focus by the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and far too many others, and that is the issue of racial injustice. You recently wrote, I have been thinking about the role Women's Fund plays in being an anti-racist organization. We do this in four ways, our mission, our people, our funding, and leading for change. How is Women's Fund addressing issues of racial injustice in these four ways? These four threads allow us to look carefully at immediate concerns caused by decades of systemic racism. And um, we are using our community leadership for long-term systemic change. We are looking at our current funding to chip away at the decades of systemic racism. And then we're doing the hard work in the middle that creates cracks and interrupts the status quo. So for instance, our people, we think that it's really important that we have a broad diversity of people making decisions. We know that one person is a token, two is company, and three changes the conversation. And by having diversity in our leadership and decision-making bodies, the conversation has changed and inherent bias is chipped away, and we begin to move towards cultural competencies and equity. Our board leadership and our committees are all co-chaired by at least one woman of color. All of our uh, committees are at least 50% women of color, and we're moving that way with our board. We're about 32% right now on our board, and as terms change, we're doing that. And it's important to understand that we are not just looking at a person's color of their skin, but rather we need to have voices that represent different thoughts, different experiences, throughout their lifetime so we can make decisions that are appropriate and take into consideration 
the way different people in our community are experiencing their day-to-day -day lives. Um, with our funding, we have a strong commitment to ensure that our funding that we're putting in the community is not only serving women and girls, but again, that it's culturally competent and until systems are changed and because trauma continues to grow and fester, we need to think about providing funding to address the fallout in that space. And we have done that in many different ways from both small grants to a very significant $750,000 grant to provide culturally competent trauma-informed theater programming for girls of color so they can tell their stories and begin the process of healing. And this is an amazing effort that was called the Sankofa Paradigm that was created by Asante Children's Theater in partnership with Boys and Girls Club, Community Health Network, and IUPUI. And the funding for this programming was possible through um, dollars that we raised when Mrs. Obama was a guest of Women's Fund in Indianapolis at Bankers Life Fieldhouse in February of 2018. And then for leading for change, as a fund of CICF, Women's Fund is deeply engaged in the foundation's efforts to end systemic racism over the next two generations. And we are using our voice to amplify their efforts. And we're using our community leadership to shine a light in spaces where women of color have been silenced, unappreciated, and ignored. And then we lift these women up by giving them a voice, appreciation, and recognition and we advocate for change and actively participate in dismantling racist systems where and when we have access. And I think it's important to note that um, that final part where it says where and when we have access, because as a women's organization, we don't always have access, that there are times where we have a hard time putting our foot in the door, but when we're in that space, we will actively participate in dismantling racist systems. I think there are a lot of people who want to be anti-racist. Perhaps they've participated in protests and now they're looking for additional ways to make an impact. How can people get involved? Well, I think the first thing that people can do who are seeking to engage more deeply is to educate themselves and to not ask their Black friends and their Black colleagues to teach them all the ways that Black people have been oppressed or denied opportunity due to systemic racism. And so taking the opportunity to read books and watch movies or listen to podcasts or participate in learning journeys. And I'll give you a couple of examples that I have found particularly helpful to me. Um, everyone at CICF read the book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin D'Angelo. We also all listened to a podcast called Seeing White, which is on the Seen on Radio um, podcast series. And um, those two things, opportunities, the book and, and the podcast really helped me understand better the advantages I have had just by waking up every day as a white woman and things that I never knew about. Um, and I think that as a white person to be vulnerable in understanding that we don't know all the ways we've been advantaged and then admitting it when we learn something new. I was 
51 years old when I found out about redlining. I had, I had never heard about that before because it wasn't part of our education. I was 52 years old when I learned about the fact that the GI Bill that made such an incredible difference for our soldiers returning for war was not something that was eligible for our black soldiers and their families. And so having an opportunity to learn about those things and understanding that while um, slavery did come to an end and that you know, Jim Crow came to an end, we still have so many racist systems that are in place that we need to learn that even exist before we can begin to dismantle those systems. I think the, um, the movie um, 13th, which is a documentary directed by Ava DuVernay, which is on Netflix, is really helpful in understanding how the criminal justice system um, incarcerates black people disproportionately and the dramatic impact that that's had in our country. Oprah Winfrey had a two-day discussion series bringing together black scholars from all over our country to talk about race in our country and systemic racism and the impact that that has had over 400 years. I felt like I learned new things from listening and watching that. And I did that two different times. The more that people are willing to be vulnerable and listen and learn makes a big difference. I also found a blog online by a woman named Calendra Smith entitled When I Needed You to Speak Up that she posted on May 30th of this year. She lists 30 things where she needs people to speak up. I'm going to share just a couple of you and a couple of them with you. She says, I need you to speak up when your best friend describes a predominantly black neighborhood as a ghetto. I need you to speak up when your kid's summer reading list have no books written by writers of color. I need you to speak up when you see the upcoming program at your local theater or art museum and see a huge swath of the population not reflected. I need you to speak up when you're on the search committee for a job applicant and your boss starts leaning towards the white candidate because they got a vibe that they would be a better fit for your team. I need you to speak up when you hear a fan at a football or basketball game call a player a racial slur. And she goes on with a huge list of ways that people can be helpful every single day. And it's a way for white people to step outside of ourselves for a moment and speak up when there's everyday injustice that chips away at our black friends, colleagues, and neighbors that we might not even know. You made excellent points about the obligations that we have as adults to educate ourselves. I want to talk about the role of formal education for our kids and our young people uh, and our college-age students. Um, How do you see the role of education from elementary school all the way through the universities in combating injustice in our communities and beyond? Well, I think that there's two really important ways. One is the, the formal curriculum. Um, I have a book that on my uh, desk that I haven't read completely yet called Lies My Teacher Told Me. And I don't think that they're lies that our teachers are telling people purposefully, but our curriculum 
especially in elementary, junior high, and high school, does not include so much of the rich history of Black people in our country, both the negative and the positive pieces of that. So our educational systems have a responsibility to um, provide a full and complete education of American history to our children and allow people to have rich discussions in ways that do not diminish their friends and their classmates who are black. And then also I think that our education system has a bold responsibility to ensure that black students are given an equal and fair and just opportunity to be successful. And so many of our systems are based upon, again, um, advantages for white people. And so how do we create those advantages for black students as well? And it can be as simple as something um, that I learned from Soledad O'Brien when she was a guest of Women's Fund a couple of years ago. She said to the audience at the time, everybody in this room could probably pick up the phone tomorrow to find an internship or a job for your child, a new door for them to walk through. And she said, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't do that, but I'm suggesting that you should also do the same thing for a child whose parent does not have that access. And I thought that was such a great illustration of um, our responsibility. That is not difficult. We don't take away from our own children, but how do we add to for other children and thinking about that in the classroom as well, that uh, education about black people and their history and their accomplishments should not happen only in the month of February. It should be every single day in the classroom and that every child, regardless of their color, has a full and equal opportunity I think that also teachers, especially with younger children, um, should not use the um, phrase that was so common a long time ago and I think is, is becoming less common now, being colorblind. Because when you're colorblind, that means that you're really not seeing the other person's color. You're not seeing the things that come with that, the disadvantages they have, the difficulties that they have. And then um, when people use the words black or brown or underserved or poor or disfranchised interchangeably, then that also diminishes those children in the classroom and doesn't allow them to feel like they are whole and fully present like the rest of the classmates are. Our podcast focuses on ethical leadership in a variety of contexts, and today, um, obviously, our discussion is, is focusing on ethical leadership in the areas of social justice. What advice would you give to leaders who are trying to ensure that their organizations are inclusive and offer a place of belonging for all people, regardless of their background? Well, I think the first thing is looking at the composition of the employees and does that reflect um, equity? Does that um, reflect that all people from the community have an equal opportunity for employment? 
And when you have a job opening, that it's not just turning to somebody you know who would be good for that, but how are you pushing that out? And so I think about in Indianapolis, for instance, if Women's Fund has a job opening, I can probably think of several people that I have a relationship with that I could reach out to that I think would be good to work for me. But if I did that and I said, I want this person to come work with me, work for Women's Fund, and I didn't look at the opportunities to go to the Indianapolis Recorder, to go to um, La Ola, and to look at different organizations that are working with and supporting opportunities for our black and brown neighbors, then I am cutting short the opportunity for Women's Fund to be the best organization that it can be, that we need to be very intentional in in how we seek diversity. And then once we have that on our staff, then we have to be thoughtful to make sure that we're not engaging in microaggression, that when people encounter somebody who looks different from them, that has different hair or dresses differently or has different um, customs that we do not call them out for that. We call them in and that if we're curious to learn more about um, the people who are working with us that might look different than we do, then it's our responsibility to learn that, not their responsibility to teach us. And then um, we need to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to have a full voice at the table, that everybody feels like they have a fair opportunity to be successful. Jennifer, 2020 has been an incredible year so far um, for a variety of reasons. We're in the middle of a pandemic. There's a lot of economic uncertainty. Uh, We're engaged in this very robust and expansive national conversation about racial injustice. And this is an extraordinary time to find yourself in a leadership position. And I wonder if you could just reflect for a few minutes about what it has meant to you be a leader right now. And um, what have you learned about yourself as a leader? Well, I think that certainly starting in March, uh, the ability to be flexible was paramount when we all of a sudden one day were in the office and then we decided we were going home and we thought we would be home till maybe May and look at us now. And so it, it was as a leader, I needed to be flexible and I needed to really think about the people who work with me at Women's Fund and what were their circumstances like working from home. So it's first thinking about the whole person before I could think about what each person's individual obligations were to their job, because what were they faced with relative to childcare or helping their children online with their studies or people who were living alone and feeling isolated or people who were having to work in the middle of their kitchen where everything else was going on and five people in their family were all trying to use the Wi-Fi at the same time. So I think the first thing for me as a leader with my team was to understand what was everybody bringing to work with them that day. And then to think about who are the constituents that we serve and how can we immediately reach out to them to have a positive impact on the work that they were doing for women and girls. So 
so it required a lot of flexibility on my part and um, thinking creatively about how we connected with donors and with sponsors to Women's Fund and how to pull them in and engage them in new ways. Um, certainly nobody was thinking about we were doing all of our, going to be doing all of our work on Zoom. How would we trans, translate in that space in a way that was meaningful to people? And then as we moved in late May and in early June to most of the white people um, in America waking up to the injustices that have been happening for the last 400 years, I felt like it was a, a time for me to be humble, to be a listener, and to, but then also lead with a strong voice from Women's Fund, for Women's Fund to very quickly say, this is what we believe, and this is how we're putting action behind those beliefs. This is what we're already doing well, and this is what we're not doing as well, where we need to be better. And then to also feel like I was putting my um, actions behind those words personally as well, and to give the people who I work with, both the employees of Women's Fund and the volunteers of Women's Fund, the space that they needed to engage in a way that was appropriate for them at the time, to recognize the exhaustion of my black and brown colleagues and board members and volunteers and, and to be um, appropriately responsive. So I think that what I learned the most during this time is that a leader needs to be flexible and needs to be quiet and also to be firm and loud when the time is right. What are your hopes for the second half of 2020? My hopes for the second half of 2020 is that um, people begin to feel a little bit more stable in their situation because we've been living with so much uncertainty relative to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think particularly as we're in the middle of summer now and, and moving towards the fall, which is the beginning of a new year for so many people and you're looking at school in the calendar and people are feeling uncertain about whether or not they want to go back to school as a student or does a parent want to send the child? Do teachers want to be there? And, and so I hope that for the second half of the year that we find some stability and, and move away from the anxiety that so many people have. And I hope relative to the national conversation on racial injustice that we don't allow this conversation to wane, that we must stand firm and that we cannot let the resolve that we had when Mr. Floyd was murdered waver. And we have to remember that it's more than the fact that Mr. Floyd was murdered, but we have incidents just like that in our own community. Yet we also have um, things that are happening all day, every day, where white people are benefiting from systemic racism that most of us don't even recognize. And so I hope for the second half of the year that um, people who are committed to being anti-racist will also commit to being bold and talking about it out loud, even when it's uncomfortable for them to do so. Well, Jennifer, thank you very much for speaking with us. We wish the best to you and your family, and of course, all your colleagues at Women's Fund. Thank you very much for the invitation.
You've been listening to the Lacey School of Business Ethics Series, made possible through the generous support of Old National Bank. This podcast has been a production of Butler University's Lacey School of Business. A very special thank you to Bram Shuckles and Kelly Schmidt of the Butler Arts and Events Center for their production assistance. Thanks for listening.